A quick message from Claire before we begin. I want to ask you to listen to a very important voice, that of climate scientist Professor Tim Flannery. Now, perhaps you already heard this last week, but did you check out the website, which is www.climatecouncil.org.au? I've done a few projects now with the Australian fashion label Spell and their fantastic team and chief brand officer Elizabeth Abegg. All around climate activism, we share the same mission. So working with Spell again here to support the work of this essential not-for-profit organisation means a lot to me. The Climate Council is where we go for independent, trustworthy information and solutions to the climate crisis. And donations help them continue their vital work. Here's Tim. Hi, I'm Tim Flannery. I'm Chief Counselor at the Australian Climate Council. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the Climate Council, an independent, crowdfunded, not-for-profit providing Australians with independent information on the science, impacts and solutions of the climate crisis we are facing. In 2013, the Federal Climate Commission, Australia's independent source of climate change information, was abolished as the first act of the incoming federal government. But within days, thousands of people chipped into Australia's biggest crowdfunding campaign to launch the new community-powered Climate Council. Since then, we've launched hundreds of peer-reviewed publications on climate impacts and solutions and shaped the national conversation on climate. We're made up of some of Australia's top scientists, researchers and volunteers. We like to call it people-powered climate science. Visit climatecouncil.org.au for independent, authoritative information on climate change or become a supporter today. This partnership is made possible through Australian fashion label Spell. By partnering with four-purpose brands, the Climate Council can reach even more Australians to educate and empower people to lead, act and advocate for action to address the climate crisis. For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you all doing? Have you been shopping? (laughs) I ask you this because stopping shopping is a trending topic, as absurd as that sounds. So it used to be a very unusual challenge to take on a very outlier kind of thing to be a simplifier or someone who was like, no, no, I'm not doing consumerism. But it's almost going mainstream. And I think that's about more of us starting to question hyper-consumerism and I guess looking for ways to resist it. What do you think? But the question is, what would happen if we all did it? What if we turned off the fashion tap tomorrow? And not just fashion, consumer goods in general, Now, I'm pretty sure the wheels of the economy would grind to a halt. There'd be mass unemployment, potentially chaos. I fear that the most marginalised people would be the worst affected. But we'd all be affected, right? I don't know. Do you run a small business, including an ethical and sustainable one? Because if shopping stopped tomorrow, where would you be then? What about your job? What about mine? Could we find a balance, I guess this is the big question, between curbing our excesses while keeping afloat? So maybe not stop shopping, but change shopping or certainly slow it down. What do we think? A few weeks ago, I read something on Fast Company. It was by this Canadian author called J.B. McKinnon, and it was an edited extract from his new book. 
He wrote, The 21st century has brought a critical dilemma into sharp relief. We must stop shopping, and yet we can't stop shopping. <laughs> I was like, I've got to get this guy. I knew I had to get him on the podcast before anyone else did too. And, dear listener, I'm glad to say I've pulled that off. And here he is. You're about to hear an absolutely riveting, thought-provoking conversation with J.B. McKinnon about his new book, The Day the World Stops Shopping. Now, I did just think we've uh, got a few episodes that relate to this. So if you fancied a binge, and we'll share some links in the show notes, you can find them always at thewardrobecrisis.com. But I recommend episodes 24 with Richard Dennis on curing affluenza, 135 with Jason Hickel on post-growth economics, 89 with Kate Fletcher on craft of use, and also you might want to re-listen to another one of my favourites with Paul Dillinger from Levi's. His is number 127. So many episodes. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you think about this one. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, of course. I'm at Mrs Press. All right, let's jump in. JB McKinnon, I'm desperate to call you James. I just don't know if I can carry it on. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. On this ridiculously hot day, we just started by saying that you're in Vancouver and it's in the middle of a terrible heat wave. Yeah, it is a it is literally a Canadian record-breaking heat wave out here. And uh, we have seen, not here, though it's very hot here, but in the drier interior, uh, they hit 47.5 degrees Celsius yesterday. I was looking this up this morning, knowing that I was going to talk to you, JB, and I was thinking about the bears, and then I googled bears, and then I remembered that I'd read somewhere that you'd actually made a documentary about bears. How are the bears? You know, that's a great question. But the bears, I think, will be, uh, they'll be moving up the sides of the mountains, and they'll be basking in the rivers. And uh, I have actually, in fact, basked a little in a river with a bear myself. Uh, so I know that they do this and uh, that they manage to keep themselves cool by getting into the coldest water they can. Oh, gosh, because I worry about animals all the time and obviously climate change. Well, first of all, they'd said that swimming pools in some areas were too hot to operate, so they had to close them. And then there was footage of bears trying to get into the swimming pools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This year... The ocean is really where I'm noticing it even more than the air, because normally at this time of year, you're cringing your way into the ocean at best. And this year, you can just walk straight into it as though it's a heated swimming pool. You've written a lot about nature, but we're here to talk about your new book. Congratulations on it. Uh, clearly, I wish I'd written it, JB. Well, that's a high compliment. <laughs> I'm grateful. I'm grateful <laughs> that somebody has read it who wishes they wrote it. Now, you think you're here to talk about that book, but firstly, I'm going to throw you a curveball and ask you to talk about other people's books. Of course, I knew that you'd written The 100 Mile Diet and you've written extensively about nature. And I know you wrote this documentary about a bear, but I was reading this the whole way through going, but why is he writing about shopping? It doesn't seem like a shopping guy. When's he going to tell us what was his way in? And then I got to the end and the acknowledgements and I found buried there a reference to the tradition of nonfiction thought experiments and fictional reimaginings of reality. And one of these was News From Nowhere by William Morris, the great arts and crafts designer who I revere. I grew up with his strawberry thief wallpaper in my house in Britain, but I've never <laughs> heard of it. So I've just ordered it. I can't believe I'd never come across it until now. What is it? Tell us about what William Morris does in that book. News From Nowhere involves a traveler who, uh, as I recall, awakes 
can't remember exactly how he nods off, but he nods off and he awakes in a new England. And this new England is familiar in many ways, but operates by completely different principles. There's equality of income. There's no payment for work. Money is just sort of a, an interesting curiosity that you know people have kicking around in the bottom of their rowboats uh, and so on. And uh, relations between men and women, everything. It's, uh, it just turns all things ordinary on their heads and walks somebody from our time through that world. So it was inspiring to me mainly in the sense of, you know, it's fun. It's fun to, in, you know, to, to invent another world or to, to suddenly take us to a new place. Right. It was also a bit of a cautionary tale for me because it's very utopian, Everything is wonderful in this New England in a way that is uh, impossible to imagine. But you also reference another book or a second book, and this one's called A World Without Us by Alan Wiseman. Mm -hmm. um, and his idea was basically what would happen if we vanished from the world. And he writes, picture a world from where all suddenly vanished tomorrow. Could nature ever obliterate all of our traces? Or is it possible that instead of having a huge, a heaving biological sigh of relief, the world would actually miss us? So that's also interesting. But you're looking at these imagined possibilities of what would happen if dot, 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 right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love the idea of the, of the personal experiment or the thought experiment as a way to explore ideas and reveal hidden truths and those sorts of things. And this was, uh, I mean, this, it was really necessary to do that in this book in the end, I felt, because I was running up against this idea that drives the book of the consumer dilemma, whereby we, you know, the planet and the climate seem to really need us to stop consuming so much. The economy seems to need us to keep consuming. And I mean, it's a very real dilemma, and it's difficult to find a way to think beyond that dilemma until I settled on this idea of a thought experiment where I just turn the shopping off and see what happens. So the, the day the world stops shopping, it's a fascinating experiment in what if. Outline your thought experiment. How did you set it up? Well, it, it imagines that one night, I suppose, we awake, we nod off and we wake up and we no longer have the desire to shop. We immediately reduce our consumption by, you know, how much? That was the first question I had to ask myself. Obviously, you can't reduce consumption by 100% because at that point, you're not acquiring any food, you're not clothing yourself in any way. I almost randomly and in a gut instinct kind of way picked a 25% drop in consumer spending. So across goods, services, and experiences. And uh, started taking that out to the world and I had sources saying to me, you know, this is too ridiculous to even contemplate, too absurd what, for too me much? to want to talk to you about. Too much, yeah. People said, well, you know, we, we can't even talk about that extreme a drop in consumption. You know, your thought experiment is is farther than I want to than I'm comfortable going with you. And then, of course, it, it happened. I was nearly finished, in fact, writing the book when the pandemic struck, and more or less overnight, consumption in many countries dropped by about twenty five percent. Became very became eminently real. 
JB, we started talking about nature and I was thinking about the bears, but that just made me think of what happened during COVID. And there's a fantastic David Attenborough documentary that zeroes in on this, but when all the animals took up the space we left. Yeah, it was, I mean, this is one of the one of the things that had already come through in my thought experiment was the way that the natural world rushes back the moment that you lift the hand of human pressure that presses down on it. And my, I mean, we all have our favorites, I think, our favorite video or photograph. You ask me this on different days, I probably have different answers, but the one that always sticks out maybe the most for me is this troop of elephants that retook an ancestral travel route in India. And as the noise of human activity receded, they started walking this migratory route again. And in part of the little video I saw of this, one of the elephants stops and climbs the steps of a temple. And really? Just, I've never seen it. <laughs> no, it's just this beautiful moment of, uh, you know, a sense of curiosity and exploration and almost possibly you know, that sense of, like a sense of gratitude. <laughs> the temple certainly brings that to mind. My favourite is the goats in a Welsh town where they're just marauding all the way through the town, jumping on the windowsills, walking up and down the streets that are empty and taking over where the cars used to live, which I loved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was powerful and really interesting. And But I think a lot of people didn't really connect it to consumption specifically. They thought of it as the disappearance of us, more like a vanishing of the human species. But it, it was consumption. A lot of it, Venice, for example, where you know all of a sudden fish and various things were returning to the canals, or even just the fact that the water was no longer cloudy in the canals. Yeah. These are directly connected to mass tourism. And mass tourism is one of these things that's part of the goods, services, and experiences that you know I was imagining receding in a day the world stopped shopping. Let's just touch back on COVID. So obviously consumption and emissions fell sharply. Do you have any numbers on what that was? I mean, you're talking about this 25% thought experiment, what might happen if our consumption fell by a quarter across the board. What happened specifically anywhere? Do we know? Yeah, I, it was the sharpest drop in carbon emissions in recorded history. So in the first six months of 2020, so this included, you know, a couple of months where things were fairly normal, there was a 9% drop in emissions. And across the year, I think it ended up being more around 7 or 8% overall, but still a very deep drop. And this is really consistent with, with what we've seen through history, which is that the only times that we see carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions drop is when we slow consumption during recessions or other economic disasters. Mm. So we, we know it works. It's just a question of can we do it uh, maybe without all of the, the very serious downsides of economic decline. Right. So what would happen? What do you mean by stop shopping? And in the book, you talk a little bit about the different ways in which we use those phrases, like to go shopping or to do the shopping. Yeah, we've got the doing the shopping, I think, is the phrase that we often associate with going out and getting really basic necessities. Uh, it might include clothing, but usually a lot of it would be food and cleaning items and things like this. But then there's that sort of let's go shopping. And uh, we associate that much more with the recreational consumption of goods or picking up things that we know are going to be useful for us in terms of positioning ourselves in society. I 
couldn't figure out a way. It's actually very difficult to say one thing is a want and one thing is a need. And, you know, I tried to dig into that, but it really is very difficult because consumption is very highly personalized in our society because we have a very complex consumer society. So I just chose to go with the number, 25% reduction. Okay, this intrigued me. Chapter three is titled, We Don't Shop Equally and So We Won't Stop Equally. When we were prepping for this, JB, I sent you, (laughs) it's like a TikTok video that went viral of some guy showing how rich Jeff Bezos from Amazon is. And it's, he's basically got massive sacks of rice and he's pouring them out and each like, I don't know, a whole pile of grains represents a million dollars or whatever and basically ends up with a mountain of rice and he takes bits away and goes, look, I could take away the equivalent of a giant house in Beverly Hills and it makes no difference to this mountain. Let's talk about the grotesque inequality that is the context to some of this because of course, like you say in your chapter head, we're not all equal shoppers and consumers, are we? No, we, we certainly are not. It's, uh, if we look at consumption, it is principally driven by affluence. And that affluence can be the extreme kind of affluence that you see with somebody like Jeff Bezos, or it could be the great disparities that we've seen between the richer countries of the world as a whole versus the poorer countries of the world as a whole. The average person in a rich country consumes 13 times as much as the average person in a poor one. You did some research around something called the Global Footprint Network. What is that and what did you find out from that? The Global Footprint Network is an organization that roughly tracks the resources that go into our consumption around the world. And one of the things they do with that information is generate this idea around if everyone consumed like the average citizen of country A, B, or C, then how many Earth's worth of resources would we need to supply that global lifestyle? And the most famous of these stats is for the United States, of course. If we all lived like the average American citizen, then we would need five planet Earth's worth of resources to sustain it. But it's not that great for other rich world countries, ranging from, you know, 2.5 Earths, I think, for countries like Spain and Britain, up to four for countries like uh, Australia and Canada. Canada. Uh, Canada. I mean, one thing that that really strikes me with Canada is that, I mean, I remember looking at these stats years ago, and I believe at that time, the United States was a four-planet country, and Canada was, was pretty good. And I thought, wow, four planets, you know, that's terrible. Those terrible Americans. And now Canada is a four-planet country, uh, even higher than that. And Australia. And Australia, yeah. And, uh, and you know, America is even worse. But we're the terrible consumers that, that the Americans were not so long ago. But the other thing that struck me as I thought about that was that, well, you know, if we have five-planet countries, do we have any one-planet countries? Are there countries where you can go and the average person's lifestyle is sustainable if we all lived in that manner? And... There are indeed those countries. There's a problem there, of course, in that some of the countries that are living at a one-planet level are, are simply very deeply impoverished countries and not maybe the best examples we want to look to in terms of what a sustainable life might actually look like or a deconsumer kind of life might look like. But there are countries that are rated as highly developed nations by the UN, that live at a one-planet level. Now, that's one level of 
development classification lower than the world's richest countries where you know many of us are living in the uh, very highly developed nations but highly developed is that's a very good standard and to achieve that while living at a one planet consumption level is very important because it means that they you know in those countries they're translating consumption into quality of life and quality of development much more efficiently than we are in the richest countries. And so those countries include... They change year by year because of the the way the data comes in. But ones that, when I last looked, Ecuador was one, the Dominican Republic was one, Jamaica, Philippines. I can't name the rest of them off the top of my head, but those sorts of countries. And I've actually been to, you know, a number of the countries that were on the list. It's interesting because a lot of people... What I, one of the most common responses people have to the idea that we should reduce consumption is that, you know, oh my my, that's going to take us back to the Stone Age. And so there's this sense, I think, out there that the choice is between the tremendously rich consumer lifestyles we lead today and some kind of imaginary Stone Age out in the rest of the world. Like we'd have to be going backwards, we couldn't possibly be improving our lot. Right, or even that there may be people out there who are living very comfortably in terms of a consumer lifestyle with a quality of life that we could probably agree is quite high, but who aren't consuming the resources of the planet at anywhere near the same intensity. You mentioned Ecuador. In the book, you go to visit a woman called Fernanda... Pais. Pais. And I wrote down a quote from her, which I just loved it. She said about the televisions, yes, I have a television. What I don't have is a television in every room. Yeah, and this is the impression that you get moving through Ecuador in general, is that it's almost, I mean, going looking for the average Ecuadorian was an interesting exercise in itself, but it almost feels uninteresting to point out what it looks like, that lifestyle, because it looks like our lifestyle. It's just at a slower and smaller scale. So you don't see people with five or six car households. You don't see... Yeah, you don't see the TV in every room. Things are smaller. Things move more slowly. If you're out on the streets, stores are a lot emptier, to be honest. And I mean, this is what a lower consuming society right now on Earth today looks like. And not in not in you know some imaginary world where we've where we've greened away all of the effects of our consumption. I remember writing in my book about on which this podcast is based, Wardrobe Crisis, about the crazy growth in American wardrobes, closets, that Mm. basically they were, I've forgotten how many times bigger, but just absurdly bigger, like second bedrooms. And obviously pressure to fill it with more clothes and it just becomes this horrible beast that just keeps growing and growing and growing, right? Which is greedy. Do you think it's about greed? Greed is an interesting question because I think it's kind of inseparable from the system as it is. I mean, we've created the system that generates greed because it requires it. It needs us to be greedy for more in order for the system to function. But I, you know, I also think that that greed is bound up in, in quite real and important things like a desire to live with a sense of dignity in a consumer society and the desire to feel secure in terms of your income and your possessions in a society that values those things really highly. So, you know, we're, we're greedy for possessions, we're greedy for income, or many of us are. But in a sense, we're also greedy for dignity. We're also greedy 
for security. And those are much cleaner motivations, in a sense. It's, uh, I, I hesitate to assign greed in our culture to nothing but negative meanings. Mm, I hate the idea of greed. I hate the idea of us just ravenously eating up everything there is without any thought. Surely there's so much more. I'm getting cross now because I'm just thinking about it. I just hate it, actually. I hate how much we overconsume. I think we are really have got our values tilted in the wrong direction and we are actually in certain societies, not everywhere, just greedy and just behaving like little ratbags who aren't thinking about the consequences <laughs> of what we do. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, like I say, I mean, I think I think that there is a, there is an element of truth in that, in the sense that that's how it gets expressed. But mm. I don't know that that's what is what's driving it. Driving I mean, we're, it. We're, yeah. we're, we're not driven by a desire to devour the planet. I mean, we're not <laughs> we're not we're not hungry to tear down forests and you know empty the oceans of fish and pollute the air. But we are hungry for a sense of self-respect vis-a-vis uh, our neighbors. <laughs> and uh, that can certainly play out as greed and covetousness. Is the system the reason why we overconsume? The system is very much the reason <laughs> that we overconsume. I mean, if we think about uh, another, really a strange outcome of working on this book was, and you're probably noticing this, is that I've developed this deeper sympathy for ourselves as consumers and and the power yes. of the system Whereas is part I'm of like that. I'm like shouting at us. You're like, no, hang on a minute. There's something here I can, re- I can empathize with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I took a close look at it, when, when you look at the fact that there is a $600 billion a year advertising industry, for example, when you look at what's happening coming out of this pandemic, where you have government sending stimulus checks to our homes to try to get us activated again in the consumer economy as I watch lifestyle media wind itself up again coming out of the pandemic and telling us what the top summer trends are going to be for 2021 and all of this, you just start to realize, you know, why on earth would we expect people not to consume all the time when this is the message, the overwhelming message, and not only a message, but a but a structural effort that we are constantly pressed through, then my sympathy for the fact that we are consumers, I mean, what else would we be? We're in a consumer society. We're in an economy that runs on consumption. There's tremendous forces compelling us to do it. The other part that I think is a big driver is the fact that if you do step outside of that system, then you're an outcast and a maverick. And some people delight in that role, but most people don't. You can delight in being that person who resists and doesn't follow the crowd and wants to be provocative and change everything. But actually, that's a privilege in itself, isn't it? And most people don't have the energy, time or capacity to be that person rocking the boat. They're just concerned with ensuring that they can look after their families, keep a roof over their heads, not fall down a hole. Yeah, I think there's a privilege in being the one that's making, you know, it's quite a middle-classy privilege to be like, oh, I'm going to become a simplifier and elect to give up all of the luxuries that other people can only dream of. Yeah, or even just a personality type. I mean, there's only so many people who are going to be comfortable being an iconoclast. It's it's just most people want to feel a little bit more a part of society than that. So the fact that there are people who endure for 20 or 30 years, you know, practicing voluntary simplicity or more, of course, it's really impressive. But 
it, it doesn't tell us very much about why the rest society. of us aren't doing yeah. it. Yeah, it's a, the reason the rest of us aren't doing it is because society is moving very much in a different direction than that. And so, you know, we're, we're inclined to head in that direction and we don't want to be outcasts. My, my big realization in writing this book was that I'm inclined to practice simplicity. I think it's attractive to me, but I'm not very good at it. I think I never really realized that you have to work at it harder, um, that just not consuming this or that doesn't add up to, you know, a rich alternative way of being. <laughs> it just leaves you a little bit empty handed because you've given things up, but you haven't taken anything new up in its place. And I think that's kind of where I've spent years probably is like leaning towards leaning towards an interest in living a simpler life, but uh, constantly falling away from it because I want, I do want to be part of, uh, of society and interactions with other people. And when friends say, you know, we've booked a place in Portugal, let's all go there and have a party. You know, I, I somehow find a way to say yes. <laughs> and I was thinking as well, the deep, deeply felt hypocrisy that I worry about in myself is I think about all this so much and I write about it and talk about it and try to practice it. But if you looked around this office, which is also my wardrobe, you would say, come off it. It's full of handbags. It's full of expensive coats <laughs> I've collected over years working in magazines. This is a fashion podcast. So I opened your book and a few pages in, I happened upon someone I know very well who's been on this podcast. Tell us how you started to get into Levi's. Tell us how you came across Paul Dillinger. And seriously, you told me things I didn't know about him. Does he really spritz his jeans with vodka to save water rather than wash them? Not only does he do that, but now I do it too. So Paul Dillinger, has he's spreading the vodka spritzing uh, meme for freshening up your jeans if you've worn them for six months. But I mean, it, it was quite fascinating ending up talking to Levi's because naive fellow that I am, I, I just started cold calling large global corporations and saying, hey, let's talk about what would happen if, if people bought a lot less of your stuff. Not, you know, in retrospect, uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that I, I was turned down quite a bit. And also... Who turned you uh, down, you know, Spill? I, I'm going to hesitate to do that. <laughs> because in some cases, I did have people talk to me, but in a, on a kind of cloak and dagger basis, where... They would talk. It was off the record. I could never say anything that was said, but it was enough to indicate that people are thinking about these things, even within these giant global brands. They just are terrified of the public consequences of doing so for themselves or for the company as a whole. I finally ended up talking to Levi's after finding Paul Dillinger saying just outright <laughs> online in, a, in some video that fashion is driven, is propped up on overconsumption, I think was his quote. And so I contacted Levi saying, can I talk to Paul? And they said yes, which I feel is, compared to my other experiences, a bit, a bit of an act of corporate courage. And I certainly would not have guessed until I went in and talked to Paul Dillinger that a VP at Levi's would be somebody who, who was so frank about the you know, the disaster that fashion in many ways is and that he would be, you know, the kind of person who would be, when I met him, was thinking about making a, a quick trip to Cape Town because Cape Town at that very moment looked like it was going to run out of drinking water and he wanted to see what a world 
with that kind of resource scarcity might look like because it looked a lot to him like the future. And that was obviously pre-COVID. I mean, Paul's got an amazing brain. He's an amazing person. I would say that um, actually, JB, there's quite a lot happening within forward-thinking companies. And obviously, you know about Patagonia, you wrote about Vincent Stanley and the ad that was like, don't buy this jacket, which listeners of this podcast will be familiar with. But there's actually a lot of forward-thinking brands that are saying, we know that this current system, which is so incredibly wasteful, is inefficient and unsustainable in the long term, and we have to do something about it. There is genuine desire to change that and to look at new ways of building the system. Obviously, there's fear around, we don't want to lose customers, but I, I don't think fashion's all filled with cretinous people whose grains of rice would fall off the table if you were to pour them atop it. <laughs> I think that actually there's a lot of work being done in a lot of progressive companies to try and combat this. There are, yeah. I think, though, that I'm still hearing mostly about about waste, and I'm still hearing mostly about how to green products. And there are still not a lot of companies speaking openly about the actual reduction of, like, how can we figure out how to sell fewer of our products? What would be the consequences of that? Could we live with that? That's the part that I, you know, I'm still not running into. And I know when the World Resources Institute went out looking specifically for people to talk about this topic, they were able to find, you know, very little out there in the public sphere in terms of business leaders, even at the smaller scale, who had, who had addressed the sheer volume of consumption rather than uh, its specific impacts. Right. They don't want to talk about reducing. They want to talk about greening and making more conscious products. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, conscious consumption and green consumption is the path that we followed. And I think we followed it because it's a beautiful form of wishful thinking that we can somehow keep doing exactly what we're doing and more and more and more of it, but wave away all of the consequences. It is better, I think, to be thinking, what are the impacts of this product and, and, you know, how can I reduce those impacts and who made this and what were their circumstances? I mean, these are really important things for us to keep in mind as consumers. But, you know, ultimately, if we want to reduce the impacts of consumption, a very obvious way to do that and a really effective one turns out to be reducing consumption. <laughs> okay, let's talk about happiness because I'm interested to know what you learned about happiness writing this book what do you put in the place of consumerism? And it can be quite hard work to find out what that should be or might be and then try to strive towards getting it. I'm thinking about enlightenment or meditation or I'm not sure. But from all the people that you interviewed, what struck you about happiness and how it's tied to consumption or reduced consumption? Well, there's a couple of key things. One is that consumption has become a pretty good facsimile of happiness. <laughs> I think that's a really important point to make because I think a lot of the time we, we think, well, clearly if it was so obviously easier to feel happy by being a non-consumer, then we would be drifting towards it in droves. I think that's just not recognizing the fact that consumer culture has become very adept at delivering something like happiness through this sort of constant stream of dopamine hits from buying new things or uh, the excitement of tiny novelties streaming into our lives and simple pleasures too, heaps and heaps of simple pleasures. And, and if you feel a dip, then you can always go back. But, you know, we know pretty, pretty well at this point from 
research into the psychology of materialism that 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 is just not as deep a form of happiness as we can get in other ways. You know, certainly at a personal level, what I learned is that I have to actually actively identify and pursue intrinsically satisfying pursuits rooted in deeper values that will bring me some satisfaction. And I have worked on that coming out of this book. And I mean, it really does work. <laughs> I suddenly feel like I'm marketing my book directly. Like, you won't believe how <laughs> yeah, effective well, my book. Yeah, go buy shopping. <laughs> yeah. Go shopping now. Five weird <laughs> things you can do this week. But uh, but it's true. I mean, uh, investing time in people I care about, deepening, working at figuring out how to have deeper friendships, spending time in the natural world, mastering things that are satisfying to me in terms of skills. These are satisfying things and they do, but you know, there's also a chapter titled, we need a better word for happiness for where this ends up. And uh, I think there's a truth to that too, that these intrinsic values and the pursuit of them leads you to deeper and more complicated forms of contentment. And probably the best example of that is that one of the places we can draw that contentment is from engagement with issues larger than ourselves. So, I mean, if you engage with the environmental causes or social causes, does it bring you happiness? I mean, some of those things are very, can be deeply troubling or disturbing uh, and sometimes very bleak indeed. And yet engagement with them is meaningful and you know brings something to our lives that we certainly can't get from even the finest of automobile upholstery. <laughs> oh, JV, I want to talk about what we can do that doesn't come with a price tag a bit more. I loved the section in your book where you talked about, I think you called it Sabbatarian England, but essentially previous time when weekends were maybe sacred, but certainly not commercial? Yeah, I mean, we certainly used to have a lot more non-commercial time. And by that, I mean, time when everyone in society is able to step outside of the cycle of production and consumption. And we had that with mainly in a lot of countries in the Western world with the Sunday Sabbath, which was not really a religious Sabbath. And very early on was recognized as something that people valued, whether or not they were religious or non-religious. But it's really hard to think back to what it would be like or, or even to picture what it would have been like to have everything shut down. I mean, mm. in, in the really deep Sabbatarian years, you couldn't go to a cafe, you couldn't go to a pub, you couldn't go to a movie. Why did you choose England as that case study? I mean, I grew up in Britain and I can remember Sunday trading when we, you know, shops were closed. I also remember Wednesday half closing and I'm not that old. That was normal. I've never even heard of Wednesday half closing, yeah. but I, I like it. It was like... Because <laughs> Wednesday is a terrible day. <laughs> well, maybe that's why they did it. I should look it up, but it, I don't think that was a London thing. But small northern town, Wednesday afternoons we closed. Sorry. Well, no. I mean, I, I chose England because... Well, mainly really just because there was this document, there was uh, this organization called Mass Observation, which was a citizen sociology group. And right as the Sabbath concept was kind of falling apart at the seams in the UK, the citizen sociologists went out and talked to people about how they felt about the Sabbath and what they did and these things. And 
And it's just an extraordinary document, mainly because of the degree of nothing that people do. I mean, they were not not shopping and then filling it with all kinds of other dazzling activities, as I might imagine we would do today, or, you know, taking city breaks or what have you. They were reading newspapers and sitting around with their families and friends and maybe going to the pub or doing a bit of gardening. But there was this real sense that this was a skill, that people were practiced at doing this, that they knew wow. how to spend downtime in a way that I think very few people do today. We don't know now. I mean, I was going to ask you, is all time commercial time today? I mean, obviously it depends where you are, but let's talk about big cities like Vancouver is a relatively big city or Sydney where I am or London or New York or I don't know, take your pick. Cape Town. I mean, anywhere, right? Any big commercial city. Is there, have we lost this idea of time off? Yeah, I mean, I think if we, particularly if we think of it in the social sense, if we think of it as circumstances where everybody, everybody's available because nobody, you know, next to nobody has to go to work. I don't think anybody has access to that anymore, certainly not in, you know, the richer nations of the world. That aspect is gone. I mean, we we may build in breaks into our lives, but even on Christmas Day and things like that now, you can't necessarily depend on people having nothing commercial to do. And of course, there's always online commerce and participation in online spectacle. That's always available. And I mean, Christmas is, again, a good example of that because you can gather the family and then watch them drift into their isolated corners to uh, text and play video games and watch movies and and, uh, live their atomized existences, even when they're gathered for kind of a ritualized family activity. You started writing this book as a thought experiment, imagining what might happen if the world stopped shopping. If the world did stop shopping, and let's just keep with your 25% drop in consumption, Do you think we'd get back some of that? Could we, I don't like to say buy back, maybe I will. Could we be buying back some of that commercial time that we have given up perhaps without meaning to? Would we all start sitting around in bed reading the paper or (laughs) reading a book we already own or buying absolutely nothing, going for a walk, picking flowers? I don't know. What do you think? I think you can. And I think you can through a particular mechanism, really. And that is that I did notice if you talk to people who've practiced simplicity for decades, they drift deeper and deeper into it. And I have, in fact, noticed this in myself as well, that once you do turn away from consumerist and materialist type values and you start to turn towards these more intrinsically oriented values, then you lose the consumer mentality to some extent. So you're not just losing the you know, the going shopping part, you're losing the part that makes you want to always be busy or make you always want to be in tune with what's going on. And where it really struck me in the pandemic was that the pandemic struck, everybody signed on to a streaming service and I didn't. And simplifiers that I'm in contact with didn't either. They're like, we don't, we don't want to add you know, all of this new noise to our heads and to our experience of day-to-day life. We're just going to sit here and, you know, do what we've always done and listen to our internal clockwork and interact with people we care about. And, you know, it was, it was quite marked for me to realize that that was, 
you know, that that was a reaction that's felt desirable to me as the pandemic kicked in. And yeah, I feel like we have fallen happily down this sort of quasi-utopian, I don't know what to call it, but, you know, we're starting to imagine this pastoral, lovely, quiet time where we all opt to be slower and more happy and etc. But that isn't necessarily what would happen, is it? I mean, we saw during COVID, for example, and this is a fashion podcast, let's talk about garment workers. When you turn off the tap of the economy or of commerce, then people who are already the most marginalised have the worst time, can't keep a roof over their heads and can't feed themselves. So is the other side of this actually more likely to be chaos and a kind of breakdown of society? I think it is the case that if we stopped shopping in the way that I describe in the book, then we would see all kinds of really difficult consequences. And of course, that is what another part of what we saw in the pandemic was, sure, garment workers uh, lost their jobs in the millions. It's a suggestion, you know, very clearly that we don't really, we don't really want to do it that way. Uh, as much as people have always been saying like, oh, we should all live more simply. If we all did that overnight, it'd be a disaster. And I mean, that really, really dependent we've become on consumption, how vulnerable we are, if it fades and makes really clear the fact that we need to actually design the system differently so that we can move incrementally in the direction of reducing consumption. Who's the uh, economist that you talk with who talks about slowing consumption as opposed to stopping consumption and how that cadence would make a real difference? And do you want to just expand on that a little bit? Because I think we always want an A or B answer, don't we? Stop shopping (laughs) or keep shopping. But there is a sort of middle way, right? Yeah, it's not veganism, right? I mean, you can gradually move into stop shopping. And I spoke to uh, an economist named Peter Victor about that. He's a Canadian economist who has built this sort of ship-in-a-bottle model of the Canadian economy in his laptop. And we were able to just, you know, dial our desire to consume up and down in his model. And if we dropped it by a a big number, like 25 or 50 percent, then it was difficult to control the consequences of that. And they would be negative. But he pointed out that you could dial it down by 4 percent, and he could pretty quickly manage that by adapting other tools, spreading out work time, for example, or shortening the work week, redistributing wealth, taking a bunch of actions that, yes, many people would identify as socialist, but what they point to clearly is the fact that it can be done. We can slow growth and still avoid collapse. And actually, there are so many examples of successful working systems that aren't based on rabid, crazy, constant growth, aren't they? And in the book, there's a lovely quote, I can't remember it, but it's about family restaurants. What was that? What did you write there? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the quote is, no one expects their local family-run restaurant to endlessly enlarge. And I think that's true of so many family businesses. And, you know, that's one of the things I looked at in the book was all over the world, we're surrounded by no growth businesses. They fix our shoes, they do our dental work, they feed us, you know, service drinks and bars. And then there are larger and much, much older companies as well in places, particularly in in, uh, Europe and in Japan, that have existed for, in some cases, centuries without putting any priority on growth. So it seems clearly possible that this is a, a choice you can make. And in fact, I'm hearing from more and more people who are doing startup type businesses to produce one or another product. And uh, their hope is to get to a certain level, 
flatten out and be satisfied with that. It makes me think that we might finish on an unfashionable or previously unfashionable, maybe unsexy idea of satisfaction. Like, we don't need to be the biggest to be the best. Maybe we could just get more comfortable with being satisfied with enough. And actually use that word in the book, which I loved, enoughness. (laughs) You said, you know... There is such a thing as a sense of enoughness and some people have it and others perhaps less, but maybe that's what we ought to move towards. And I love what you're saying about that. I think if lots of our listeners have got small brands or small businesses and, you know, the idea of turn off shopping makes them rightly cross because they think, well, how am I going to pay for my life? But if we just drove towards enoughness, we don't need to have excess. We don't need endless growth, but we can still support and thrive within certain boundaries, maybe. What do you think about that? Maybe that's a way to end this. Yeah, I think enoughness is the heart of it all. I mean, it's what we need to achieve to reduce consumption in, in every sphere. That sense that we could take uh, fewer journeys in our lives, but invest more into them and come away with a sense of enoughness that we can own fewer things and, again, maybe care more about them, keep them longer, caretake them, attach our life stories to them, and be satisfied with this this sense of sufficiency around that. That's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Never, Never enough stopping shopping, yes. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you.